This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Let's talk about that possible snap election in British Columbia. Premier John Horgan is clearly thinking about pulling the pin on this. Let's find out what Andrew Weaver thinks about it now. He is the former leader of the BC Green Party. He is now an independent MLA at the legislature. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Andrew, thank you for coming on. Good morning, and thank you for having me, Mike. Okay, I know you have very close relations with uh, Premier John Horgan. He consults with you regularly. Have you talked to him about this idea of a snap election call? Well, well, clearly he's seeking advice from numbers of uh, people, and he's been communicating to a large group of people. It's an extraordinarily difficult decision that he has to make, and you could, you know, it's actually a, a decision that you could argue either side of. So, so, so I, I have no crystal ball as to what he's going to do. Uh, you could imagine, on the one hand, he's thinking that okay, we just announced yesterday uh, the 1.5 billion dollar economic plan. That's 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 very much. Uh, uh, along the lines of a new mandate, uh, quite not conceived of back in 2017 when we signed CASA. So on the one hand, he might be seeking a mandate to deliver upon this this path forward. On the other hand, there you know there is the CASA agreement, and some have argued that in fact, uh, you know that he wasn't going to he claimed he wasn't going to call a slack, snap election. But then there's a counter to that too, because you could argue that within CASA there have been some on all sides. There's been some 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 examples where the good faith and no surprises hasn't actually played out the way it was supposed to. So I think Cass is moot in the bigger picture, but what really it boils down to is, does Mr. Horgan, uh, you know, call an election based on the fact that there's so many people uh, who have announced they'll run, as well as the fact that uh, there is this, of course, this $1.5 billion uh, announcement moving forward, or does he wait until 2021 and, 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 you know, hope he can get the the confidence of the House in the spring, in the spring, um, session and move forward okay it's, it's a difficult decision okay when you refer to casa you're referring to the confidence and supply agreement which is the deal that you signed with premier john horgan to support his minority government keep him in power and i just reviewed the agreement again last night and it says very clearly in there your signature is on it horgan's signature is on it no snap election that you will go to October 2021 before there's a snap election. It's right there in the agreement. So how can you say that is moot? So there's a number of comments on that. So the, the, within the agreement, sure, it, it, there's no questions there. But there's other things in the agreement that are there. For example, it says that we operate under the good faith and no surprises clause. Uh, for example, also you could take a look at the agreement and realize that, in fact, most of which we've done there has been already completed. So the agreement is has served extraordinarily well. It, it, it kept a minority government in place for over three years, one of the longest minority governments in Canadian history. Um, virtually everything in that has been accomplished. And, and of course, you know, the, an agreement is, if, if 
Anybody at any time could point to the agreement and say, look, the other party violated it in this instance. Mr. Horgan could point to the fact that this past summer, uh, a sub-amendment was brought on the floor that was not given advance notice to the NDP. And one could yeah. argue that that sub-amendment, which essentially hamstrung the government's ability to uh, spend money after a state of emergency crop, one so could you, argue wait, well, that... Hang on, hang on a second. So you think a yeah. sub-amendment uh, sub from the Green Party, it gives him the green light to hold a snap election in the middle of a COVID-19 pandemic. We just had the highest number of cases yesterday. Are you saying that you think it's okay for him to call this election right now? No, no, I'm thinking, what I'm saying, not at all, what I'm saying is that the whole argument pointing to CASA as being you can't because of CASA or you can because of CASA is a moot argument. What you've raised there is the essence of what clearly he's got to discuss and think about and consult upon with others is, is it wise for me to cause uh, call an election now uh, in light of the fact that we have many things all going, not the least of which is today the BCTF made the announcement that they did, uh, or should I rec- should I call, in a, call an election in light of the fact that we never conceived of COVID-19 or a pandemic back when it was signed. And, and right now, you know, government needs the ability to turn on a dime and actually respond in a timely fashion. And that amendment actually limited government's ability. And the government brought forward a okay. $1.5 billion recovery plan just uh, yesterday. Should we go for a new mandate? Okay, it's, you're, it's you're, cutting a, a, you're cutting him a lot of slack here, Andrew Weaver, to uh, apparently try to allow him to, to pull this stunt. And I just want to put it to you clearly what do you think do you think this would be responsible to call an election right now because i sure don't what is your opinion uh, well my opinion is I, I i wouldn't want to be the guy making this decision it's an extraordinarily difficult decision because uh, honestly asking your opinion uh, my opinion is i could argue it either way and i'm not oh, and i will on, not no. judge him whether he does or he does not because i think he has a very difficult decision to make there's a multitude of stakeholders out there in which will come to play, some of whom would, will think that it's important to get a new mandate, some of whom think that it's not important to do that, and what's more important is to focus on the pandemic. And there's some who say, well, we're having trouble doing that, and others who say, well, well let's just get on with it. So okay. I, it's, it's, it's not a, it's not a, it's, it's, it's a very, I mean, this is why we elected him as a, as a premier, right? He's got to make these tough decisions. I, I, see, and, I, suggest, and I feel I see. my role in CASA is yeah. to support a decision one whatever way that government I suggest it. to you the large majority of British Columbians would disagree with you and they would say that it's irresponsible for him to call uh, what is clearly an unnecessary election right now and just simply be a power grab but let me let me play this for you this is um Norman Spector whom you know well because he is a mm-hmm. uh, uh, helped advise you when you were drafting this deal with with the NDP to put Horgan in the premier's office and and Specter has come out quite clearly that he thinks it'd be uh, irresponsible for Horgan to call this election and he was on this show yesterday Andrew I want to play this clip for you Specter yesterday I have sure. never seen a premier or a prime minister looking to go to the polls on the basis of a message that I lied to you to, <laughs> to get the job and I'm going to keep lying to you <laughs> to, to, to keep that job. Okay, he says the premier lied when he signed that deal with you that he would not call an election. Now he's clearly thinking of doing the opposite. Your thoughts? I, I find that language rather inflammatory. And, and I, I think Mr. Spector um, should, should have been a little more caged back uh, 
a war sword I'm looking for, conservative in the language he used there. I think it's a very difficult decision. Uh, Mr. Spector, I would uh, argue, has uh, should not be writing letters uh, telling the lieutenant governor what he thinks she should do. That's, I would argue, inappropriate. That letter appeared in the front page of the Times columnist yesterday. And I think we should just, you know, everyone's entitled to their opinion. I think it's a difficult decision he will have to make one way or the other. I support whichever decision he makes. And I think most British Columbians, understand, while they may not want an election, it, frankly, they probably wouldn't want an election any day of the week, seven days a, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, you know, every year. People don't want elections. So, I, you know, I, right. of course, I, I, I understand why people don't want elections. But whatever he decides to do, I would understand what he decides to do because it's a difficult decision. And I think, you know, there's there's a lot of, uh, noise out there uh, with people claiming this and claiming that. Not, not, of course, Mr. Spectre's added to that by, you know, rather inflammatory language. I, I think what we need to do is, is recognize that it's a tough decision. And uh, uh, Mr. Horgan's a good person, right? He, he will make the right decision, I think, based on what he thinks is in the best interest of British Columbia. It, now, it, I, it, I, it almost sounds like I'm defending him. Yeah, it sounds like you've almost gone completely over to his side. Like, I just wonder if, uh, for I know you're not running again in the riding no. of o- Oak Bay Gordon Head. Um, would you endorse the Green Party candidate in that riding, or, or do you think, I, would you I, vote I, for Murray you Rankin, my, the, the NDP way, candidate? As you can tell the whole way I've conducted this interview, Mike, I, I, I'm an independent now. I, I'm going to, at some point, uh, move back to, the, to an advisory role in, the, in my University of Victoria, and I, do, I have always believe that policy trumps politics, policy trumps partisan politics all the time. And it, it's the case here. I will vote, you know, Bay Gordon Head for who I think is the best candidate. Uh, we don't know who the BC Green Party candidate is. I, I, I don't know. You don't know. They haven't held it yet. I, I know that there's some outstanding candidates there. The Roxanne Helm from the Liberals. I went to high school with her. She's a very strong candidate. Uh, Murray Rankin, uh, who was our MP, he's a very strong candidate. Uh, if he beats Michelle Kirby, who's also a strong candidate, he's running for the base. So I think there's a long track record in our writing. Or frankly, Mike, you live there too. You know, there's a long track record in our writing that people vote for the person over the party. And I think that's uh, what will happen in the upcoming election. I'm not going to endorse anybody in any party or any premier. Okay. Despite the fact people claim that I have, I'm, I'm literally going to sit on the sidelines the bag of popcorn out of great interest watching what transpires if there is an election and if not on we go final question for you with the potential for a snap election call here which i i think would be outrageous and a power grab by this premier and you obviously you obviously think differently but there is not only an agreement with your former party the green party that he would not do this but there's a law in british columbia that stipulates that we've got a scheduled fixed election date in this province and it's october of 2021 and that law was put into place unanimously to prevent exactly these type of hijinks that are going on right now, where a premier would try to trigger election purely for partisan advantage. So he's going against that law. You're going to support him on that? So, so that is an, an element of the debate that we haven't actually had in the public discourse, and I think that's a really important uh, issue to raise. Is that there is a fixed election date law, and to me that is, you know, that that. The, that is a good argument. That should is this uh, the appropriate thing to do? I mean, there's arguments and counter arguments on all sides. It's a difficult decision, Mike. I I okay. I, I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know uh, if he's going to call a snap election. I don't, I don't know. You know, we have a. I'm not worried about. Uh, you know, the, 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 to me, that is the the big question. Is is there's a fixed election date? That's what it said. And should there be called a snap election beforehand? That is the question because of that fixed election date. The council right. one, I think, is moot. It's that fixed election date that's important. 
Okay. The, the, you know, and, and you could make a very strong case that that, that is important. I mean, you know, you've got other, other provinces, too, that have had elections or are having elections. Like New Brunswick, we've got Saskatchewan having an election on October 26th. You know, to me, we know we can conduct elections in a safe manner based on what happened in New Brunswick. The okay. real question, in my view, is, is this appropriate or not to actually right. call an election because of the fixed election late legislation if the, and the premier has to weigh that in his decision making. But on top of that, of course, we have the situation where we're in gotta, a pandemic. i got to cut you off there, Andrew Weaver, yeah. but thank, thank you for your time because we're up against the clock. Thank you for coming on this morning. A pleasure. Thanks for having me. Mike. All right. Andrew Weaver, Take former you. leader of the B.C. Green Party. Some serious news we're covering now, and it was another violent night in Metro Vancouver last night. Surrey RCMP said a man is in hospital after he was shot in the Campbell Heights neighborhood last night. Uh, they got a call about multiple shots being ringing out. They arrived to find a man with gunshot wounds. He is in hospital. The shooting comes after three murders in Vancouver on Wednesday. A spasm of violence here on the streets of Metro Vancouver. Let's talk about it now with my guest, Cash Heed, former Chief Constable, West Vancouver Police Department. He is the former Solicitor General for British Columbia. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Cash. Good morning, Mike. Okay, so we see uh, lots of uh, lots of gunplay. We've seen people. We've seen several murders in the city this week. Another shooting last night. Very brazen. Police describing this shooting last night as a targeted shooting, in their opinion. Uh, no arrests in the, in these cases so far. What are your thoughts on this? These are difficult cases to crack for the cops, right? Absolutely difficult. There's an ebb and flow in gang violence that occurs here in this particular region and elsewhere in British Columbia. And the police are trying to suppress it. They're trying to oppress it to a certain extent. They've had some good success, but uh, they're just being reactive to the problem. Uh, certainly crime is up in all categories. We've got property crime up. We've got other crime up, crime severity index is up. So we've got this convergence of issues that are taking place right now. We've got this incredible drug demand here in the lower mainland. So a lot of this is perpetrated simply because of the money that's been made from the sale of drugs. So there's there's several factors that allude to this, but more importantly, and overriding on this, Mike, is we can't continue to react to it. It is uh, resource intensive. We've got to start with comprehensive crime prevention programs so we stop it before we're having to respond to it. Okay, we've seen gang warfare in the city before. It seems to like ebb and flow, as you said. In this particular case, is there any doubt that this is about drug dealing turf and and gangs uh, shooting each other? No doubt at all, but more uh, particular to this region is the bravado attitude of some of these young gangsters that are getting involved in this particular life. The bravado attitude, the easy access to firearms are some of the contributing factors to the violence that's on our streets right now. Yeah, how many gangs are out there fighting for control of this market? Yeah, it's very difficult to determine the number of gang members and gangs. And I know the media often asks this particular question. But from my experience, it's so organic. And gangs morph into other gangs. We've seen that, especially with the self-agents. We have cells operating with more of the traditional organized crime groups. They morph into other uh, gang activity, gang members, all of that. So it's difficult to determine, but uh, the more important thing is how many youngsters do we have waiting to fill the void when someone gets knocked off or sent to jail? And I think that's the number we need to really start to focus our energy on. And all these other ones that are out there committing crimes, do what we can to arrest them, throw them in jail, and throw the key away. 
Okay, speaking to Kashid, the former Solicitor General of BC, about the gang warfare we're seeing in uh, Metro Vancouver this week. You, you talked about some of the easy access to guns, Cash. Where do these guns come from? They come across the border from the United States? Mainly from the United States. There's so many different ways that these guns have infiltrated our communities right now. And uh, whether it's uh, legally or illegally, uh, it comes in through that way. We've, we've got this culture just to the south of us that are really, uh, I call it the gun sick culture, but their firearms are making way into Canada. We've heard people say, no, that's not the case. It, it's from domestic use but regardless if you track and i you know the we've had nos programs we had firearms interdiction programs in place the majority of it is still tracked down across uh, our border to the united states okay well you uh you've been on the uh the gang beat in the past when police are confronted with uh these type of shootings and killings what is the the main challenge or barrier for the police? Is it kind of the people just clamming up and there's little information and people not ratting each other out? Is that one of the biggest problems? That is the largest. And the other oh. problem is, you know, one day suspect, next day victim. So it's difficult oh. to have some case closures in a lot of this. And the families, you know, we often think of the families. By the time these individuals are involved in this behavior and we expect the families to turn them in, that's not going to happen. We expect the families to work with us to try and prevent it. And Mike, maybe this is where we have to talk about a different uh, way we police our communities to bring in those appropriate agencies to deal with the prevention uh, aspect of this problem. Okay. So far in these killings that we've seen this week, it doesn't appear, at least in the one last night, that uh, no innocents were killed. The, the police police said this was a targeted killing. Uh, they believe it was a, a gang hit. But we have seen cases in the past where innocent, innocent people do get caught in the crossfire. Do Should the public be worried when they see these type of, like a, a bunch of killings in a row in, in the streets of Metro Vancouver? Or is this a case of like gang soldiers killing each other? No. This irks me when law enforcement officials come out and say that the public is not at risk. The public actually is at risk. Look at the time of this activity, Mike. We had 7.30, we had 7 o'clock p.m., we had the one last night at 9 p.m. These are when people are out there enjoying the outdoors, especially this time of year. I can tell you the community, the public is at significant risk because of the behavior of these individuals. Okay, you talked about the importance of some sort of preventative measures here to protect kids from getting into gangs or being attracted to this type of lifestyle. You believe that, what, the measures that are in place right now are not enough? They're not enough. Absolutely not. We still, Mike, and I've been calling this for quite some time, we do not have a comprehensive strategy to deal with our gang behavior and delinquency within British Columbia and even within Canada. Some other uh, jurisdictions around the world have had some success in this area. I think we it's time that we have this comprehensive strategy, and it does not necessarily have to be led by the police. Okay, the shooting we saw last night occurred in Surrey, the Surrey RCMP investigating. Of course, we got a municipal government in place in Surrey saying the RCMP are going to be replaced by a local municipal police department. Do you think that's the the best way to go right now to get rid of the Mounties and bring in a, in a municipal force? And do you think it'll make any difference? Yes, I'm supportive of the change and I'm supportive in, in, in three areas. 
accountability, effectiveness, and efficiency, and bringing that back so we can deal specifically with those issues. Mike, if the RCMP in Surrey were doing a great job in in preventing these activities instead of just responding to them, I wouldn't be saying that. But we need to look at a different model. I think Surrey's ripe for that new model so we can bring in those three main themes uh, to ensure that we're addressing not only the gang issue, but there's several other issues in Surrey. And more importantly is we need to bring in all the other stakeholders under this model to deal with this particular problem. But, so but, here we are at a, a key point where we'll be able to make a difference. But how will, how will a local police force specifically make it any better or make it more effective? Like at the end of the day, isn't we have largely a lot of the same police officers on the streets chasing these gangsters around. They just got a different patch on their shoulder and their uniform. How is that going to make a difference? Well, regional police is what I've been advocating for many years, but there's no political will for that. Mike, I've talked to you many times about this. That's the most effective strategy, but uh, at least we can bring that down to a local level because it's very difficult, and I understand with the RCMP there are federal force meant to be a federal force. It's very difficult to implement change in one particular jurisdiction when you have something that affects the entire force. And I think that's what we have to be cognizant of. They're still controlled by Ottawa. We still don't have that direct accountability to the municipalities that they are on contract to police. Cash, thank you for coming on today. Pleasure, Mike. All right, that is Cash Heed. He's the former chief of the West Vancouver Police Department. He is the former solicitor general for the province of British Columbia. Yeah, gang violence on the streets of Metro Vancouver. One man shot last night in Surrey. There were three people killed in Vancouver on Wednesday. We continue to follow that for you. Let's talk about TikTok and WeChat now. The United States set to ban both popular smartphone apps within the next 48 hours. The Trump White House is saying they are concerned that China is using both of these apps to potentially collect data on American citizens. The Trump White House putting out a statement that we have taken significant action now to combat China's malicious collection of American citizens' personal data. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Jesse Miller, founder of Mediated Reality. He's a social media expert. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hiya, Jesse. Hey Mike, how are you this morning? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for doing this. So we talked, uh, we talked before about uh, WeChat and, and TikTok and the potential for the Trump White House to bring the hammer down here. Looks like they're uh, determined to do it. Why is the Trump administration doing this? Well, a, a couple of things. Um, like, like human decency, business ethics, and empathy, uh, the conversation and action about TikTok and WeChat is something that Trump doesn't understand and in turn he feels threatened by. He's creating this dog whistle for his base to get upset about the idea of a another state having control over American information. And that right there will align with his base and his kind of nationalistic approach. But he's also finding corporate allies who recognize that being able to have an American foothold over Chinese companies, especially the idea of kind of protecting American information, will allow for corporate interests and for people who have the ability to make a lot of money right now to continue doing that in the next uh, five years if TikTok and WeChat continue to grow in North America. But most importantly, he's taking a position trying to identify 
that there's this national security issue. And there is absolutely zero evidence that TikTok and Americans' use of TikTok or anybody else outside of China um, have had their information compromised or used against them, no more, no less than Facebook collecting Canadians' data. But how do we know, how do we know that for sure? I mean, we know the power of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, of course, they, they all deny it. Oh, of course, no, we're not transferring personal information to, to authorities in China. But, of course, they're going to say that no matter what. I mean, how do we know for sure? The United States is not alone here. I mean, India has just banned uh, TikTok and WeChat. The United Kingdom is looking at it, too. Yeah. And, and again, it's the idea of that political posturing. And now, just as a piece here, I mean, the American Patriot Act allows any Canadian entering the United States access to your Facebook account, Instagram account, Snapchat account. Um, those are American companies, the servers are in the United States. So if Canadians are kind of aligning themselves with this idea that at the end of the day, their information is secure, we're as equally prone to a government going through information that we consider to be private. And to be honest with you, it isn't. So it doesn't matter if it's China, the United States or any other country. The concern not, is, shouldn't be necessarily about the app. It's about the information that we give away to apps. And most people are fairly comfortable because they get to use it and get to enjoy the platform. Okay, there was some, uh, there was some speculation that maybe Trump would, would pull back on this order banning the TikTok app if there was a deal with an American company here to partner with them, right? Was it Oracle? Is that who they're looking yeah. at it? Yeah. What's, so that the, what's the status of that? Place. Yeah, so that deal's in place, and what it is is that Oracle, which is a server company in the United States, would basically host information in the United States uh, that, that's transferred over TikTok. Now, the thing of this is, is that Oracle itself is getting kind of an inside track to this. Uh, the CEO of Oracle is a Trump supporter. Uh, um, we have a lot of kind of uh, data that's showing that this deal should have been favorited actually towards Microsoft, um, but Microsoft backed out based on the conditions. And, the, and I think we have to be very careful here. We're using this word ban. This week, we will see TikTok and WeChat not taken down from the App Store, but you won't be able to update. You won't see software updates, uh, app updates that way. But the reality of it is, is that the whole ban will go into place literally right after the American election. So this is that a positioning of the corporate interests and trying to get basically some American hands into a company that uh, isn't based in the United States. And to be honest with you, the United States doesn't like when companies are making money ahead of them. Okay, what is the danger here about this? I mean, obviously, both of these apps are very popular, especially with younger users. But if it was to be blocked or banned or, or uh, other measures taken against it, uh, what would be the problem with that? I mean, it, does that send a bad message to investment atmosphere in the United States? Or what are your concerns there? Yeah, it's actually, I mean, in China, I can't have a Facebook account. I can't have an Instagram account. Those are banned in China. But majority of Chinese citizens who use those social media platforms use a VPN and bypass it. You will still see people using TikTok in the United States. They'll still download it. They'll figure out the same way that majority of Chinese nationals have used uh, international social media. The bigger concern here is what does that internet look like in a free market? We value the idea that you can go to a website, that anybody should have free access to it. And once you start to see these bans and these controls, it does go and lean more towards a totalitarian state, which right now the United States is basically saying you can't trust China. I'm inclined yeah. to say if these steps happen, you probably can't trust the United States as, I, as well. Well, there's probably some pre-election posturing here, obviously, going on by Trump as well, because he's setting, he wants to set up China as some sort of an enemy here for, for voters in the fall. But he's also said there's a little bit of wriggle room here, right? The president has said until there's a, a deadline of November 12th for national security concerns around TikTok to be resolved. So what do you think the chances are that Trump backs off of this? 
like anything else where he's been posturing, he, he'll probably back off because it's not going to be a huge election issue. But it's it's basically deflecting from other concerns that are happening right now. Uh, so whether it's COVID, whether it's talking about the United States Postal Service or whether or not it's about actually getting people to the polls, it is a great way of getting media to pay attention to something. But you have to keep in mind here, communications and the battle for advertising dollars is a cold war. We can't argue about the Russia versus the United States cold war anymore. So you have to find a new way of posturing those conversations. Mm. And for me as an investor, if I was investing in a social media company today, I'd be looking okay. for ones that are fair, being fairly neutral. Jesse, thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Uh, all right. Thank you. Jesse Miller, founder, Mediated Reality. He's a social media expert. He's a frequent guest here on the show. Appreciate his time. Well, if we do get into a BC election here in the next few days, which is obviously distinctly possible here, one of the key issues could be child care in our province, especially as we emerge and struggle through this pandemic. Lots of people trying to get back to work, especially working moms and child care, big part of the equation for a lot of families out there. But child care, of course, very expensive. The NDP government has made a lot of promises about child care. Let's get a checkup with them and see how they're doing on it so far. My guest is Katrina Chen. She is the Minister of State for child care. She's the NDP MLA in Burnaby Lougheed. Uh, Minister, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Okay, I appreciate it. So what's the latest on your, your child care program? Well, today we're really happy to announce that we have uh, supported the creation uh, of over 20,000 spaces. Uh, our target during the last election was 22,000, and we're still quite a few months away uh, to the year end, and we already have supported the creation of 20,000, which is an important milestone for us. It really showed how, even though the pandemic has slowed a lot of things down, it has not slowed us down on our goal to create more childcare spaces and affordable spaces that can serve families for generations to come. Okay, 20,000 childcare spaces. Who is eligible for these spaces? So we work with all different types of providers, um, including for-profit, non-profit, uh, local government, school district, municipalities, indigenous communities. And I'm very thankful that a lot of providers have come on board to work with us to apply for funding, uh, to look at uh, how do we create different projects that can support different type of families, including uh, I was just at the city of Burnaby announcing a great project. This is going to be one of the first kind that is a housing project serving local seniors with culturally inclusive services that's done by Success, a local nonprofit. And then they're going to add up to 75 childcare spaces on the same site. That's by a lens okay. that's provided by the city of Burnaby. And this type of public partnership um, with local nonprofits, with local government working together with the provincial government and BC Housing really creates long-term uh, services for our communities. Okay, childcare spaces are obviously a, a, great, a great appeal to a lot of families out there who, who struggle to find quality, affordable care for their kids. Uh, these childcare spaces that you've created, are these, are these for low-income families? Are they means-tested or can anybody get these spaces? There are so many different types of spaces. I would say that they serve uh, all families in BC. Um, depending on the project, some providers would um, put priorities to lower income families. We also work with, um, for example, when you talked about how working moms are really struggle, I'm one of the working moms who struggles with my own childcare too. So there are yeah, some organizations yeah. that may be focused on serving uh, vulnerable women or, um, or sometimes there's inclusive cultural services. But our funding goes to providers who wants to create projects that right. are needed in their community um, that serves 
um, especially through our other initiatives. So we do have initiatives that support affordable childcare. We have a fee reduction program and an affordable childcare benefit program and a prototype site. So they actually are already bringing um, uh, over, I think, about, uh, sorry, close to 33,000 uh, children uh, who are paying $10 a day childcare. So we have so many initiatives. Uh, it'll take me the whole day to talk about them, but they'll serve all families in BC with diversity. Okay, but but it's fair to say, though, that uh, a lot of these spaces would not be available to just everybody. You might you might have to qualify. You might have to be from a low-income family, or you might have to be a single, mo- a single mom or something like that, right? There, there will be... There will be tests for some of these spaces, and, you have to, and not everyone will qualify for them, right? Uh, no, not at all. Actually, most of our spaces that we've been funding, uh, either through nonprofits or local providers um, or family providers, we support small operators as well. They're open yeah. to all families. I, I don't oh. think uh, a lot of uh, organizations that provide, provide such restrictions, um, and we do welcome. For example, our fee reduction program is not income tested. So if you are a center, and now we have over 93% of centers that have joined our government's plan to bring down childcare costs up to $350 per month, that yeah. they're not income tested, all families can benefit from that program. Okay, how do people get these childcare spaces? Can they go online and apply for them, or how do they find them? Uh, I would encourage, if you're a parent looking for childcare services, contact your local childcare resource referral center, especially during a pandemic. Uh, we have provided over $250 million temporary emergency funding to support families who are not comfortable going to their, back to their childcare yet to hold their spaces, but also in the meantime, the key is to support providers to continue to operate during a pandemic, and that they can also come back in service. Some providers that we're also supporting are cl- were, were closed temporarily, um, that they could come back in service. So um, during that time, we prioritized uh, services for essential services workers, and we uh, really heavily counted on our local child care resource referral centers that are in BC communities serving local families to do that referral. Um, but now we're open that service up to all families. So if you're a family looking for child care, contact your local child care resource referral center, and they may be able to refer you to local um, services that may have an available spot. Okay, speaking to Katrina Chen, she is the Minister of State for Child Care in, in the B.C. government. Uh, the NDP uh, campaigned in the last election on $10 a day child care, and I heard you just mention that figure. Is that how much this child care costs? It's $10 a day? Uh, so currently, because we have three different affordability measures, I cannot tell you the number of the initiatives that we wrote out. It's over three dozen. Um, but we have three affordability measures that are currently bringing $10 a day to close to 33,000 uh, children. Uh, so those spots are, they're paying $10 a day for spots or less. Actually, some lower income families are paying no cost or very little for their child care services. And that includes our prototype side as well, that cap fees at $10 a day. And we're learning, uh, we've learned a lot through the past three years, especially childcare was never a focus in this province. When I started this work three years ago, I, as a mom who really struggled with childcare, I always thought about how childcare has never been a top priority for our government, uh, for the provincial government. And our government is putting it as a priority. I'm proud to be able to do the work, especially yeah. how the pandemic has highlighted the need of childcare. So uh, we need to continue this work to bring affordable, inclusive, quality childcare to BC families. Okay, I, I know there's probably a lot of people listening to this right now and and thinking ten dollars a day for child care where do i get that i would love to get ten dollar a day child care you guys promised it in the last election i I suggest to you that the the vast majority of parents out there are paying a heck of a lot more than 10 bucks a day for child care for their for their kids so when when will you guys deliver on your promise of ten dollars a day child care for for the people of this province like I said, uh, we are already delivering for uh, close to 33,000 families that are benefiting. Uh, there's a lot more than 33. A day there's, or, 
There's a lot more than 33,000 families in our province. Totally. <laughs> totally. So when, I are the, agree. when are the rest of um, them going to get it? So um, what we're doing right now is that there are, so the fee reduction I mentioned is not income tested up to $350 off. And then we also have the affordable childcare benefit that benefits lower and middle income families. A lot of families, I have to say, up to the income of 111000 um, that you can get additional um, uh, reduction. So a lot of families are currently paying $20 a day, $25 a day based on their income. And I strongly encourage people to apply for the affordable childcare benefit because if you think about who are the ones struggling about returning to work, such as myself, before I became an MLA, my income uh, was about $80,000. You make that such a hard decision about do I pay, you know, $1,200, $1,500 to go okay. to childcare, or do I put most of my paycheck in there or do I stay at home? Those are the families that are making the toughest decisions. And that is why we focus on those lower and middle income families to make sure they no longer have to uh, make that, that tough decision. They can okay. get $10 a day, $15 a day or $10, $20 a day childcare. At the same time, we have this non-income tested so every family can benefit from our fee reduction. It's okay. a start. This is the beginning, but not the end. Yeah. We have to continue this work. Minister, thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much for your time. Have okay, a great day. thank you. Same to you. Katrina Chen, she is the Minister of State for Child Care, NDP MLA there in Burnaby. And you heard her uh, just describing the government's child care initiative. Yeah, $10 a day child care, that's what the NDP promised in the last election. You heard her say that some parents or some families are, are receiving it now, but uh, you tell me if you can get $10 a day child. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Childcare out there. Let's talk about the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic now. And the, one of the best hopes to get beyond this crisis is the development of a safe, effective vaccine against this disease. This is a global effort to develop this vaccine. Work going on all around the world including south of the border, where Pfizer, the pharmaceutical company, is part of a major coronavirus vaccine trial. And what a great guest. I've got to talk about that now. Molly Jong Fast. She is an editor-at-large at The Daily Beast, and she is part of this vaccine trial. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Molly, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, this is really exciting to talk to you about this because I'm fascinated by this, this uh, search for a vaccine. How did you get involved with the trial for a COVID-19 vaccine with uh, Pfizer? Well, when, you know, I've lived in New York this entire time and uh, New York was one of the hardest, the places that was the hardest hit. Right. Uh, and so in, around, in about March, April, I, you know, I witnessed just a lot of carnage. And so I thought, I thought to myself, well, when there's vaccine, I'm going to do everything I can to get in the medical trials. And then, more, sort of more recently, I've been see, I've been hearing a lot of 
vaccine hesitancy, even from like left-leaning smart people who have are, are professors or even doctors. And that got me really worried. So I really made an effort to get into this Yale Pfizer vaccine trial. And because I feel like unless people can see that the vaccine is safe and that people, unless they can see us take the vaccine, yeah. you're running on faith. And we have this American president who is sort of a known liar. And so we have to show the American people and the Canadian people that this vaccine is safe by taking it. Okay. And you're now officially enrolled in this trial. You're officially yeah. pa- patient number 1133, I understand. So have you, re- have you received the, uh, the vaccine? Yeah. I got my first dose. Well, now, again, when you talk about a medical trial, you have to remember that this is a blind trial. So 50% of the people in this trial are actually receiving a placebo. Yes. But I did get my first shot, and I know about five people in the Pfizer trial, and all of them have had no symptoms. Well, how about yourself? How how have you felt after receiving the shot? Absolutely fine. I'm nothing. I have had no symptoms. I've had no discomfort, no fever, nothing. Okay, of course, of course, you don't know if you've received the real vaccine or the placebo. Of course, they don't tell you, right? right? Yeah. 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 And in fact, it's so blind that even the doctor who runs the study, who's a very smart infectious disease doctor who teaches at Yale and works at the Yale hospital, doesn't know. The only yeah. people who know whether I got the placebo or the, uh, or the actual vaccine are the study nurses. Okay, uh, why did you decide to be involved in this trial, and what, and what do your friends and, uh, think about it? Do they think it's a smart thing to do to take this vaccine? So I am 42, and, and I have never lived in a time when Americans have hated and feared science like they do now. I mean, it's just shocking to me. And I know that that's insane. And so I wanted to do a tangible thing to show that science is real. And that, I mean, American people are weirdly distrustful, even on the left of science and medicine. And I think a lot of this has come from having a a president that's so untethered to reality. But we have to demonstrate that science is safe and that vaccines work. And I saw that there was such a huge anti-vaccine movement on Facebook and in social media. And there's no, there's no effort on the vaccine, in, in vaccine world to combat that. So I really felt like the more people we could get taking the vaccine, showing that it's safe, showing that we're normal, not crazy people, we're just like the normal people who believe in science, that that was really important. So I do really feel like this is a calling. Okay, sadly, Molly, we just got a minute left here. Uh, do you have any any fear at all about this? Because, you know, we don't know that the the idea of a trial is to make sure the vaccine is safe. Are you worried? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> I am worried. Uh, no, I'm actually not worried. I, I know how the mechanisms of vaccines work, and I know that they're safe. And okay. with an RNA vaccine, if anything, it's safer than some of the traditional vaccines. The question is more, I'm worried that it might not work, because that would be terrible. But I'm not worried for my safety. Okay, it was really interesting to talk to you about this, and we'll keep in touch with you, because I would would love to talk to you again as we go along and we go forward here with the trial, because so many people around the world are interested in it. Thank you very much for coming on today. 
Oh, thank you. Thanks okay. for having me. You bet. Thanks a lot. Molly okay. Jong Fast. She is an editor at the Daily Beast. And as you heard her describe there, part of one of the first COVID-19 vaccine trials in the United States. She's received a shot. So far, so good. Don't know if it's the real thing or a placebo. We're going to keep in touch with her. Let's talk about uh, yesterday's rollout by the B.C. government of its new economic recovery plan. This was unveiled by Premier John Horgan, also Finance Minister Carol James. Definitely had an election feel to it, complete with the new signage on the podiums there. Stronger B.C. for everyone. That's what this plan is called. Stronger BC. That's uh, likely the NDP campaign theme here. If we do get into a snap election, like uh, John Horgan is clearly considering doing right now, a $1.5 billion plan announced yesterday. A lot of it is not new money. There was a little fumbling and bumbling with the numbers on this thing, but clearly kind of a campaign effort here, I think, for, for the NDP. Even got the commercials going, too. So get set to see that in your TV screen, TV commercials. Uh, promoting this plan as well. Let's check in with Sonia first to know now. She is the new leader of the BC Green Party. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Sonia. Good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. What did you think of that plan yesterday? So it's a good starting place. It has lots of initiatives, um, but there's a lot of work to do, and it, it fundamentally lacks imagination about what's possible and, in fact, what's necessary at this point in our history. We have uh, a number of overlapping crises. We have the COVID-19, we have the opioid crises, we have a growing housing and homelessness crisis. Uh, we have air that is hard to breathe right now because of the climate fires from the United States. And so what we need is uh, uh, all of our efforts right now have to be focused on dreaming quite a bit bigger for our province. So for example, we should be striving to put every young person who needs a job to work restoring and healing our natural environment. We need a, a mass building retrofit campaign across the entire province because that not only creates jobs, it reduces GHG emissions. And we need to look at how are we creating a just transition for workers in dying industries. But one more thing, Mike, I wanted to touch on is sure. that $1.5 billion in funding that was announced yesterday as part of this plan was funding that was approved by all three parties in the legislature right. in this historic session we just had where we came together and collaborated and cooperated because that's what you do in an emergency. You, you put partisanship aside and you recognize that first and foremost, especially in an emergency, service to the people of British Columbia and good governance has to be the guiding North Star by which we are making all of our decisions. Okay, and do you think that, that this government and this premier are, are doing that right now with all this snap election talk out there? The last thing we need right now is for our health minister and our minister of education to be on the campaign trail asking yeah. for money instead of working with our, pub, our provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, to make sure that people and their health and well-being are first and foremost in everything. We had a record-setting number of COVID-19 cases yesterday. Yep. The trajectory has been exactly the opposite of what we've been striving for in this province since the very beginning of this. This is not a time to put politics and partisanship ahead of health and well-being. And this government has everything it needs. It, we passed a budget this summer. This funding package for this recovery plan has been passed. It is time to implement it and put 
all of our efforts into the, the well-being and economic recovery of this province. Okay, speaking to Green Party leader Sonia Furstenau about that economic recovery plan outlined by the government yesterday, did that smack of a kind of a, a pre-election platform possibly being rolled out by the government here? They seem to have all the, the election-style signs ready to go yesterday. They've got an advertising campaign that they've rolled out simultaneously, even though this this is a government said they would ban partisan advertising. But anyway, it just, it just seems like an election campaign. Is that the way it struck you? Uh, it Well, it certainly uh, looked, it has a lot of hallmarks on that. And, and to that, I would say, and this is really important, yeah. in, a, in a state, in a crisis that we're in, like the ones we're in right now, and protect, particularly with COVID, what we need is for people to have trust in their government and in the institutions that are dealing with this crisis. And so when we have cynical politics playing out where the premier is uh, going against what he has said in the past, where he's willing to dissolve an agreement that's working perfectly fine for the people of British Columbia, where he's putting the political fortunes of his party uh, in front of the well-being of people. That undermines trust in government. And I, I, I really say to him right now that this is not a time to be to be playing any kind of games like that because we need both the trust in government and and in the institutions and we need people to feel that we are here putting their interest their safety protecting them the people of bc first and foremost at the top of all of our agendas right now okay i I spoke to your uh, your predecessor uh on the show earlier today Andrew Weaver, of course, the former former leader now of the BC Green Party, now an independent MLA. And we talked about this potential for Horgan to call this snap election, even though uh, there's an agreement with the Green Party to not call one. And I want to play something for you here and get, and get your take on it. This is, this is Andrew Weaver, the former Green leader here, uh, talking about the potential for a snap election here in BC. Here's what he said. I support whichever decision he makes. And I think most British Columbians, understand, while they may not want an election, it, frankly, they probably wouldn't want an election any day of the week, seven days a, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, you know, every year. People don't want elections. So, I, you know, I, right. of course, I, I, I understand why people don't want elections. But whatever he decides to do, I would understand what he decides to do because it's a difficult decision. Okay, he seems to be kind of clearing the track, saying that he feels that the agreement that you guys signed with Horgan is is moot now, in his words, and that he would not have a problem with Horgan calling an election, and he thinks an election could be held safely right now, despite the pandemic. What do you think of that? Well, first of all, I mean, his approach is is, uh, different than mine, and and I don't think that, uh, particularly as a scientist, that he needs to be weighing in on what is safe or not safe. Uh, we'll leave that to the provincial health officer and the experts. Uh, and in terms of uh, his opinion, I, I will point to the legislation that uh, that sets fixed election dates. I will point to the agreement that uh, John Horgan signed in our agreement in CASA that uh, adheres to that. And the fact that in this legislature, um, it was passed that the fixed election date uh, would fall on a Saturday in October, four years after the uh, the last election, and so right. it, it, it's not about what what some people think is or is not moot. This is about the law. This is about right. again trust in government, about believing politicians when they give their word on something that they will stick to that, and that is needed more right now than any time 
I would say, in our province's history, because we have to be able to look to the people who are giving us guidance right now and say, I trust those people that they are putting my interests first. And that's what I'm calling on John Horgan to do. Speaking to BC Green Party leader Sonia Furstenau, yeah, the the agreement between the Green Party and, and the NDP, uh, I took another look at the, the terms of it last night, and I think it's clearly not moot. I think it, the agreement would clearly be still in effect. It says right there the term of the agreement is it's in effect until the next scheduled election, which is October of 2021, and it also says that he will not call an earlier election. So, I mean, it's pretty black and white. His signature's on it. I know yours is, too. And so is Andrew Weaver's signature. Do you believe that Weaver thinks the, the agreement is moot now or it's not enforceable? Do you think the agree- is the agreement still in force in your mind? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we all put our signature to it. As you said, it, it's very clear what it says in there. And uh, there's no need for an election. It would be an utterly and completely unnecessary election. And again, look at the tasks that lie in front of us. People are worried about their jobs. They're worried about their health. They're worried about their kids being back in school. They're worried about outbreaks in health centers, in schools. Teachers are concerned about their health and safety. People are worried about their economic security. We have an enormous task. And what we need to do, as we did in this summer, as we did on March 23rd in the emergency session that we held here, is that all three parties, all 87 representatives, need to come together and say, how do we put the best interests of British Columbia in front of us right now and work towards that? I'd also point to like the collaboration that happened in the legislature this summer included uh, us supporting the, the NDP with significant reforms to ICBC. We supported them on their workers' compensation bill. Uh, and, and there was, on the last day of the session, unanimous support for the budget. Right. Let me play one more clip from Andrew Weaver here for you for my interview this morning. We talked. We also talked as well about this, the fixed election law that we have in British Columbia that, that you just mentioned. And here is his take on it. Here's Weaver uh, talking to me this morning. You could make a very strong case that that, that is important. I mean, you know, you've got other, other provinces, too, that have had elections or are having elections. Like New Brunswick, we've got Saskatchewan having an election on October 26th. You know, to me, we know we can conduct elections in a safe manner based on what happened in New Brunswick. The okay. real question, in my view, is... Is this appropriate or not to actually right. call an election because of the fixed election late legislation? If the, and the premier has to weigh that in his decision making. Okay, yeah. So he thinks it can be safe, and it's just up to the premier to make the call, and he's not going to criticize him. But your thoughts? So a couple of things. Saskatchewan, that was their fixed election date. They aren't calling an unnecessary election. In New Brunswick, where the COVID numbers have been significantly lower, the problem they had there was that the government couldn't get agreement on their budget. That is not the case here. The government just had a budget passed, and they have an agenda, and they have the support of both of the other parties to say, we want you to get to work on this agenda and to work on protecting and keeping safe the people of British Columbia at a time when we are facing a level of insecurity around our health, our well-being, our futures, and our finances that is unprecedented. And so let's get to that work. Let's stop wasting our time on this unnecessary election talk, and let's put all of our efforts into how do we best protect and support the people of British Columbia right now. All right. Thank you for coming on today. 
Thank you so much, Mike. I appreciate it a lot. Sonia Firstenau, she is the leader of the B.C. Green Party there. Very different message from her, uh, contrasting with Andrew Weaver, the guy she replaced as the leader of the Green Party. Weaver saying this morning, it's fine for Horgan to call an election. We can do it safely. He doesn't believe that that agreement is enforceable anymore, in which Horgan agreed not to call an early election. She disagrees on all of that.